Hi. Welcome to the CJOB Sports Show podcast. On this episode, we talked to Sean Reynolds of Sportsnet, who was there in Montreal when the Habs clinched their berth in the Stanley Cup final. How on earth did they do it? We'll talk to him about that. And how is his French, by the way? Also, we'll talk to Kelsey Wog, Winnipeg swimmer, who is off to the Olympics very soon, heading to Tokyo. We'll talk to her about her preparations and her chameleon on the podcast. Last night in Montreal, the Canadians get an overtime winner by Arturia Leckett in the streets, go nuts, and the Habs have a Stanley Cup final berth for the first time since 1993. And the man who was there in the streets with the people last night, Sean Reynolds of Sportsnet, joins us now. Sean, how are you feeling today? Great. Yeah, a little bit tired, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll take watching hockey at this time of year over sleep any time of day. So where are you right now? Just at my hotel room. Yeah. Okay. Just still in Montreal. I'll stay here until Sunday. Uh, until the, they're going to be here on Sunday. They'll be at their practice facility before they head down south to whichever city uh, is represented by the winner of the game tonight. And then uh, I'll be back here for game three. Okay. So doing those uh, pregame hits in the street last night, I'm sure you were transported back to some degree back to when Winnipeg had. Uh, their runs in the playoffs was it yeah. you know refreshing for you as a reporter or someone who covers sports just to be in a, a crowd again yeah i'll be honest and i mean i understand everyone's uh, reaction to covid is going to be different and i know that there's a lot of people who you know talk about the anxiety of things getting back to normal and you know when you we spend your time indoors and with masks on you know reopening can be scary to some people i totally understand that uh i'm in the camp of people who is uh interested and will be happy when things return to normal so it was definitely a feeling of normalcy last night to get out uh in the crowd like that it just it felt the you you said it perfect it felt like 2018 which was so much fun i was talking with some people in the industry today i mean fans end up becoming such a huge part of the playoff story uh especially in canada because their response to to their team is always so exciting and i look back at 2018 and i'll say i've never seen anything like that before the whiteout street party was just something else uh, unlike anything i've ever seen before and that those are the things that we end up really remembering about those crazy runs outside of the hockey how is your french by the way terrible it's absolutely terrible (laughs) i went into a place to order the other day and I tried ordering in French, uh, and the the waiter responded to me in English, which was a clear sign that he knew that I was not francophone <laughs> and that I was trying. And so I appreciated him responding so that I'd, under- I'd understand. But at the same time, uh, it was like you know handing in a, a paper to your teacher and getting it back with a big F on it. <laughs> He's like, "Thanks for trying, but yeah, I'll, exactly." We'll take it from here. A little tap on the head. Oh, you're so cute. And then move along. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so from a hockey point of view, Sean, the Montreal Canadiens were obviously not picked by anybody to make the Stanley Cup final. They come in as the 18th best team in the NHL record-wise. They had kind of everything go wrong. Carey Price wasn't great in the regular season. They had the COVID issues. Brendan Gallagher was hurt. But we see this sometimes in hockey. Teams just kind of coalesce at the right time, and everything just seems to hit at the right time what's your takeaway from what we've seen from this Habs team over the last three rounds 
Well, it's interesting because we were, we were trying to pick the teams that were going to make it to the playoffs in the North Division this year. Um, I had Toronto, Edmonton, Winnipeg, and Calgary. I and I remember at the beginning of the year when we were talking with you know my fellow reporters and sports reporters in in Winnipeg. I'd said about the Canadians, the Canadians have every single piece they need to be to be a successful team it's just a matter of putting it all together and that's been my take on the Habs for a long time they just don't seem to be able to put it together and so for me it was if they were going to succeed you know uh Nick Suzuki was going to need to continue on that pace that we saw from him in the playoffs last year when he was a rookie uh, and Carey Price was going to have to return to the old Carey Price, and so on and so forth. Uh, Tyler Toffoli was going to need to come in and score at a, a really high rate. Their defense was going to have to come together. Joel Edmondson was going to have to be the best version of himself. And there was just so many ifs, and it was too many ifs for me. And for what we saw throughout the regular season was that that was the case. It was too many things for them to put together. That's what we saw. Carey Price wasn't playoff carry price he was an old carry price he was the carry price quite honestly that we've known for the last five years that hasn't been that same goaltender well you take a look at what he does now and it's one of those situations where you know during the regular season the conversation of who the best goaltender in the league hit for years has been players like Tuka Rask and Connor Hellebuck uh, and Andre Vasilevsky Pat or carry price has not been in that conversation for a long time until the playoffs in the playoffs I think it's hard to argue that there's any other goaltender in the world that is a better goaltender than Carey Price. And just all those things that they needed to do, they have put together and they've done to the degree that you look at this team now and you think, like, Christian, if I would have told you at the beginning of the year that this Canadians team was going to get to the playoffs and they weren't going to have Thomas Tatar and Jonathan Drouin, you, I mean, I, I think that we probably would have thought that we wouldn't have given this team a chance at all. And instead, er now we take a look and see those are players that are either not available or they're sitting on the Black Aces roster. And yet this Canadians team is so unbelievably deep. Players like Michael Froelich, who we know are phenomenal players. Montreal Canadiens fans don't even know that because those players never got off the taxi squad. And uh, it's just it's unbelievable how deep a team has been put together here to the to the point that I do think that they gave the GM of the year uh, trophy to the wrong man in Lou Lamorello. I think it should have gone to Mark Bergevin. And there's also the fact that they fired their coach in February, and the on ice results weren't really much different going no. from pre Claude Julien to to post when Ducharme took over. I mean, the win loss record, the goals four goals against, it was all kind of the same. And so you look at this run and you look back at some of the other runs we've seen for lower seeds, you know, the Preds in 2017 as an eight seed, uh, the Kings as an eight seed in 2012, the Oilers in 2006 as an eight seed going to the cup final. It happens sometimes that a team that no one thought actually just f figures it out and goes on the run to get to this point. But where do you think that this Habs team ranks as far as unlikely cup participants are in, in the, at least recent history? Well, I don't put them ahead of teams like uh, the Edmonton Oilers uh, back, back during that run um, because I, I think – and the LA Kings I always felt were a team that, that 
were really, really good. I remember actually the year that they were the eighth seed and Mitch Peacock will back uh, me up on this. We were at um, CBC at the time. Both of us were working at CBC and I had said to him, I thought that the LA Kings were a really, really dangerous team that were capable of going on a really, really deep cup run because they, they had a great team and they had all those pieces there. It was the same thing. Uh, I just saw them as being a team that kind of had the capabilities and knew how to turn it on, on the re- at the right time. And they did the exact same thing after after being an eighth seed. They won their second cup as uh, as the sixth seed, if I remember correctly, or flip-flopped those two years. But they all both years they came from a late seed. Uh, I see this Montreal Canadiens team as being more like that LA Kings team. If you take a look at how deep and how solid they are, uh, how they're able to lose a player like Jake Evans uh, and have Arturi Lekkonen, who you know was a black ace on this team, move in to the top line on the Montreal Canadiens and be capable of scoring a game winner, be capable of being part of one of the, you know, the very best by by numbers um, penalty kills that we've ever seen in the playoffs before, uh, be capable of being, you know, scoring a series win and goal the way that he has. I mean, that's just absolute true depth. And then if you take a look at, at, you know, being able to lose your coach to COVID like they have in Dom Ducharme and have the, you know, the coaching roster that they have to be able to step in and handle that situation the way that they have. I just, you look at this roster and there's really no holes in it. There's no weak links in it. So that Edmonton Oilers team, I thought, was one that played way above its head. Here, I think that the the Montreal Canadiens are playing, every man is basically playing not above their head, but kind of to their optimal level, just all at the right time. And that's, you know, the signs that you see of, Basically, every really good team that you'll see that gets to this point of the season, uh, you know, in any year is a team that basically all their pieces come together at the right time. That's what we're seeing from the Montreal Canadiens is every player maximizing their game. Back in uh, in uh, Edmonton, which, what's that, 2006, I believe it was? Yep. Um, th- that Edmonton team, to me, was just playing above itself and was just so unbelievably driven and held together by Chris Pronger. I, I used to say it back in that day, like, uh, you know, ha- having Chris Pronger on your roster, he was on that team, and then he went to uh, uh, the Ducks the very next year and won the Cup, and then a couple years later went to the Cup final with uh, that uh, uh, Philadelphia Flyers team. He was just, you know, a playoff championship in a can, that player. He was just so good and gave... Uh, he would You could just log him for so many minutes, and he was so defensively strong that you you could add that one player and shut other really good teams down he, he to me one of the best playoff performers and one of the biggest playoff difference makers in in the the history of the game that we've ever seen i give him a lot of credit for what the oilers did back in those days should jets fans feel different now about them getting swept by montreal than they did when game four happened a couple weeks ago I mean, if you felt that the Jets forgot to show up and that they were losing to a really bad team, then most definitely you should feel different because what we're seeing now is that the Montreal Canadiens aren't a really bad team. But um, I've said this before. If if your contention is that, you know, the Jets... And this is the Jets' contention, right? Connor Ellibuck has said they're a couple pieces away from being a dynasty, Right. And that's what we keep hearing. The Jets organization is really happy that they went. They're one of the final eight teams standing, right? That, and that says that they're right there. Uh, what I would take away from this is in the play of 
the two teams that you're watching on the ice right now in the play of the Vegas Golden Knights and in the play of the Montreal Canadiens who stacked to, you know, when we saw them on the ice together, it's not close. The, the, the Winnipeg Jets were not close to the Montreal Canadiens in that series. And if you're one of these people who's saying, boy, oh boy, it would have been an entirely different series if Mark Shifley had been out on the ice. I don't buy that for a second. And if you believe that, I think not only should you be upset that the Winnipeg Jets aren't still playing hockey right now, you should be upset that, uh, that Mark Shifley isn't one of the finalists for the Hart Trophy. Because if Mark Shifley would have made that big of a difference in that series, that the Winnipeg Jets would be or still going at this moment, that's MVP territory right there. If you make that much of a difference in a series that your team would have gone from being out-possessed, out-shot, out-classed in almost every single way through that, out that entire series, and your presence would have that drastically turned the tides, you're talking about a player who should be winning the Hart Trophy. I'll get you out of here on this, Sean. How about Cole Caulfield? Oh man, uh, what a what a phenomenal player! That goal that he scores in Game Six is just a play that is a nothing burger play. Like it should it should be the puck gets passed to him on the boards, and his defenseman is right on him with a great gap and knocks the stick away from him, and it's no play, right? And it goes from being that to him chipping the puck over the defender's stick, and still at that moment you're thinking, okay, well it looks like he's gonna. He's going to get a a zone entry. Never mind. You're looking at it thinking he's just going to get designed denied a zone entry, and then it goes to being like, okay, well maybe he's going to possess the puck now and carry it along the outside of the boards and get rubbed out on the boards. To okay, now he looks like he's fast enough that maybe he'll carry this in the, along the boards down behind the net long enough until the rest of the Canadians can get there and maybe they'll get a good zone possession out of this. To oh man, it almost looks like he could get. Uh, a shot off on net here to suddenly like he's in all alone and boom he scored and it's just like you know in in a fraction of a second it goes from that to that and that's what do you call that that's game breaking potential right making something out of nothing that's something that we reserve for players who've been around for a really long time or or impactful of the game I always said that about Dustin Bufflin when back in the days when people would talk about trading Dustin Bufflin all the time one of the things I always said is Dustin Bufflin is the kind of player who can change the game all by himself with a play and he you know we saw that from him down down the you know down the stretch of his career with the Winnipeg Jets Cole Caulfield is already showing that at this age and and what I loved about his performance uh not only in game six but in game five as well is game four that that uh game that they lost they were up one nothing and to me it's a mistake by Cole Caulfield that creates uh the confusion in the zone that allows the tying goal and they end up going and losing a game they probably should have won and typically what you would respond what you would expect from a young player like that is they go out the next game and they cheat the game because what they want to do especially if they're scorers is they want to go out and they want to get that goal back they want to affect the outcome of the game and they want to score and they want their team to win and they want to be the guy who scores and does that but in usually what happens is they cheat the game and and they they start playing on the wrong side of the puck and they're trying to get there 
Cole Caulfield has shown to me this ability to stay a game breaker in the playoffs at the hardest time of year, but still stay fully in his defensive structure and know the right time to get out of that and get up ice and just have the skills to get past phenomenal defensemen in uh, what we saw in the Vegas Golden Knights. This kid is, is, to me, on his way to being a star. I said this, I think that next year, as a rookie, he's going to be a 30-goal scorer. I think he's that good, and that says a lot for the Montreal Canadiens, who are not a high-scoring team. To have a 30-goal scorer on that roster would be absolutely huge. I can't remember the last time, uh, you know, for, for them that that's happened, but... Um, Cole Caulfield is the real deal. Uh, excited to see what he's able to accomplish here in the Stanley Cup final. Well, Sean, appreciate your time. Thanks for this, and uh, enjoy covering the final for Sportsnet. Thank you so much for having me on. Earlier this week, Winnipeg's Kelsey Wog qualified for the Tokyo Olympics in her three swimming disciplines, the 100-meter breaststroke, the 200-meter breaststroke, and the 200-meter individual medley. She's the lone Manitoban on the team looking to build off a, a pretty successful games in Rio in 2016, like Penny Alexiak and her bursting onto the scene. It just so happens we have Kelsey on the line calling in from Toronto. Kelsey, first of all, congratulations on qualifying for the games. How does it feel to be an Olympian? Honestly, it doesn't feel real yet. I'm still processing it, I think, and I'm just looking forward to going to the games. So let's go back, first of all, to to the lead-up over the last year or so. Was there ever a thought that this might not ever actually happen, that the Olympics wouldn't take place just because of the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I was kind of off and on of, are they going to happen or are they not? I kind of had a pretty good feeling that they would happen, but I knew that they would look different. So, I mean, I still went to practice every day with, with it in mind that it's happening because the worst would be to think that it's not happening and then it happens and then you aren't prepared. So at what points in the last 12 months were you not able to swim? It was pretty hit and miss up until uh, January of 2021. I mean, the summer was kind of hit and miss and um, December was kind of questionable, but then I was really able to get solid training in as of January. And so going into this meet in Toronto, were your expectations to qualify in all three of your disciplines? I mean, I didn't really know what to expect going into the meet because nobody's raced, so you have no idea where anybody was at. I just knew that I did the best prop preparation that I possibly could have, and I was really happy to end up on the team. So were there nerves in those races? Because you've had big races at the university level before. Where did these rank in terms of your being nervous before a race? Yeah, to be honest, this was a really strange meet. I wasn't nervous at all for some reason. I don't know if it was that um, I knew that I had done a lot of awesome work and I just had to stay relaxed to to execute it or if it was just that there wasn't many people there or whatnot, but I wasn't, I wasn't nervous at all. So were you able to fraternize at all at this meet or was it basically you're on your own, go in the pool, get out and just kind of just stay on your own? Yeah, there wasn't much uh, socializing happening and I could only 
meet and like say hi to the people that I was basically racing against. Because I, well, I watched the races and people would walk out of the tunnel, mask on, you get to your spot and that's when you can take your mask off and then you get out of the pool and the mask is on. I guess for people that have been swimming when they can here, just like on their own, it's probably a similar thing too. But have you gotten used to how unusual all the protocols make this experience for you? Yeah, I mean, we definitely had protocols here in Winnipeg too. So it was, it was pretty it felt pretty normal protocols for what it is these days. Um, some of them were interesting with like change rooms and walking out and stuff, but it was, it was fine. Was there a difference in feeling from the first race that you qualified into the third or was it really, once the first one happened, you knew you were going to be nominated to go that kind of took some of the pressure off. Yeah, it definitely took a little bit of the pressure off, but um, I don't know. It didn't feel real at that point. It just felt like another swim meet, and I I was just focused on my next two races because they were, like, one after another. So I didn't really have time to kind of think about anything. I just had to focus for my next race. So what happens now? When do you leave for Tokyo? Um, I am not sure, to be honest. Okay. <laughs> So, yeah. so I guess until you do, you're going to be training in Toronto? I'm going to Vancouver tomorrow okay. to train until we leave for Tokyo. Okay, I guess that makes more sense from a flight perspective. You'd go that way. So, uh, yeah. So have you already, I guess, packed to go to the games? Like, how did that work when you left Winnipeg? Yeah, so I, I left Winnipeg for trials, packed for um, six weeks. <laughs> So, yeah. So it's a very optimistic packing then. Yeah, I mean, I I was feeling really good about my preparation and I knew that I had some good swims in me. Um, and I just, you know, you don't want to be caught without packing. And then it's like, oh, like I have to get all this stuff. And so I just wanted to be prepared. Makes sense. So what do you feel like you need to to make sure you do in the next few weeks to prepare for the Olympics? How do you stack up against people outside of this country? Yeah. Um, I mean, I really want to make the final in all of my races. So I'm just going to um, fine tune a couple of things, um, maybe do a little bit more volume in the next week or two, but um, my coach will definitely have a great plan, and I, I trust him fully. Do you look at how other people around the world are doing and their qualifications to see where you stack up, or do you worry about that? Um, yeah, like, you definitely, I definitely catch myself, like, looking. Like, I watched U.S. trials, I watched Australia trials, and everybody was swimming so fast. It was so amazing and so good to see. I mean, it's really hard to tell where you kind of stack up until until you're in the same place racing them because anything can happen. When did you decide that breaststroke was your go-to, that that's the one you're going to be great at? I think it hit me when I was 14 at Canada Games when I won a bronze medal in the 200-meter breaststroke. So I think that was kind of when it clicked that, breaststroke was my thing but leading up to that 
age, I honestly hated brushstroke so much, probably because it was the slowest. <laughs> and so what changed then? Um, probably because I found, I found success in it and I was like, oh yeah, okay, this is, this is my thing. I'm going to, I'm going to work at it a little bit more and see how far I can go with it. And now you're going to the Olympics with it. Yeah. <laughs> now, one, before I let you go, I got to ask you about your pet that I had no idea about. I just, I was watching <laughs> the last race and all of a sudden there's a, what is it? A chameleon that your family yeah. had up on the screen and you, you, you started laughing. Devin was doing the interview there. Why did you decide to get? Why is a reptile the pet for you? Someone who's in water all the time. Why a reptile? <laughs> I think I've always wanted a reptile since I was like six years old. I think one one year I was kind of looking back through old things of mine and stuff, and um, I wrote a Christmas letter to my grandma asking her to get me a chameleon for Christmas when I was like six or seven or something. And honestly, ever since then, I've always wanted a reptile and i'm allergic to cats and dogs so mm. that wasn't really an option and then yeah i finally got one when did you get it uh i got i got my first chameleon probably like six or se seven maybe eight years ago okay i've had them for quite a while so how many have you had three okay and this one's name is pierre Pierre, okay. So it's a French chameleon? <laughs> I guess so. All right. Well, Kelsey, appreciate your time. Good luck at the Olympics. If we don't talk to you before then, enjoy the experience. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for listening to the CJOB Sports Show podcast. If you like what you heard, guess what? You can hear more every weeknight on CJOB from 6.30 to 9 p.m., of course. That is when the Jets are not playing, because if the Jets are playing, then I don't have a show, but I'll be part of the pre- and post-game coverage. Anyway, thanks again for tuning in. Subscribe if you'd like. We're available on iTunes and other places I'd imagine. So farewell, until we meet again. So long and thanks for all the fish. So sad that it should come to this. We try to warn you over the